Well, as you are aware, we are in the midst of the political season, and uh, it seems every time the television is turned on or I go to the mailbox, I have something asking me to vote for someone. I have noticed that uh, there is something in common with all of them who are asking for my vote, and that is this. If I vote for them, then my life is going to be wonderful. I received... um, a little pamphlet in the mail. I've received a number of them, but I received a little pamphlet in the mail from one who was running for office, and he listed all the good things he had already done for me and then listed the good things he was going to do for me. I was quite impressed. I thought, this is wonderful that someone is going to take that good a care of me. And uh, I've called him twice during the last month. He has not returned my call. And I'm sure that he's out doing something good for me, but nevertheless... And then the presidential candidates, I have watched them, and they are going to solve all of our problems so that there is no difficulty, there's no suffering in life. They're going to deal with the issue of the environment. Your gasoline is going to go down. Your finances are going to be good. Everybody's going to have universal health care, and and, uh, the education system is going to improve. We're going to bring all the troops home, and so it's going to be a wonderful life. As I was thinking about all of these promises that are being made, I thought to myself, you know, Jesus couldn't get elected to anything here. Because Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulations. Now, folks, that's not a good slogan to run for office on. But that's what Jesus said, and Paul's was not much better than that. Paul said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And then James in chapter 1, verse number 2 said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. He didn't say if you encounter them. He said when you encounter them. The fact is, we all experience suffering in life. Physical suffering, I am absolutely amazed sometimes when I pause to consider the number of our people who are struggling with serious disease in their life. I am amazed sometimes when I think about those people within our congregation who live with chronic pain and uncertainty. But not only is there physical pain, there also is emotional suffering. There are some of you who suffer emotionally because you have lost a loved one to death recently and so you are bereaved. There are some who are struggling with divorce and the pain that goes with that. There's the suffering of disappointment. Jesus experienced that. When Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray prior to going to the cross, he took Peter, James, and John with him and asked them to pray. And instead they went to sleep and he expressed his disappointment. So there is a lot of suffering in life. Well, how do we deal with it? See, we have been studying for some weeks the the uh, Paul, James letter, and, and uh, so in that letter, he is encouraging us that we grow up in the faith, that we mature in the faith. So, how then can we face suffering as a mature believer? Take your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 5. We'll begin in verse number 7, where we left off last time. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You, you have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. As we consider the question that is before us, how can we respond to suffering with maturity? We see, first of all, a call to patience there in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren. He said that when we face suffering in life, that as a mature believer, we are to face it with patience. Now, the dictionary defines patient as bearing pains or trials calmly or without complaint. W.E. Vines says this, Long-suffering or patience is that quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation which does not hastily retaliate or promptly punish. It is the opposite of anger and is associated with mercy. The word patient is two Greek words come together. One means anger and the other means far away. So the word patient from the Greek language means that our anger is pushed far away. When we face times of suffering in our life, it is expected that we respond to them if we are mature believers with patience. Someone wrote, patience is a virtue, possess it if you can, found seldom in a woman, never in a man. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 20, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now, he uses the word there, harshly treated, which literally means overbearing, unjust, crooked, when you're harshly treated. It is easy to be patient with good people, is it not? There are some people who are just good people. Now, they might irritate us, they might get on our nerves and so forth, but we can be patient with them because they are good people. But what about those who are not? What about those who treat us harshly? What about those who take advantage of us? What about those people who treat us with a lack of kindness? He says that we are to be patient with them. How? How can we do that? When someone treats us wrong, how can we be patient with them? Well, James, I believe, is saying that the mature believer understands some things. First of all, the mature believer understands that patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Now, folks, when you are, you become a believer, one is saved, the Bible says the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you. 
And the Scripture says that the Holy Spirit gives to us certain gifts and graces. One of those that is mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, verse number 22, is patience. So when the Holy Spirit of God is in control of our life, when the Spirit of God is filling our life, then one of the graces we receive is that of patience. So then we understand that patience is supernatural, it is not natural. It is not natural for me to be patient with someone who harshly treats me. That is supernatural. And when I respond with patience, the Bible says then that God is pleased. Peter wrote, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now, it gives us three examples in this passage of Scripture about being patient. First of all is the farmer there in verse number 7b. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Farmers are patient people. I grew up on a farm, and I knew that I could never be a farmer because I'm just not that patient. But they plant the seed, and then they fertilize, and they wait for the weather, and they have no control over it. Maybe it rains, maybe there's a drought. Maybe they plant it, maybe it comes up, and then there's a storm that tears it up. So they are extremely patient. What is their motivation? What is the motivation of a farmer to be patient? Look again at verse 7. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil. The farmer is patient. He patiently plants the seed and he nurtures it. He cares for it. He fertilizes it. Why? Because he anticipates the harvest. There's a harvest that's coming. That's what James is saying to us in application. We must be patient with ourselves and with each other, understanding that God is producing a harvest in us. God is producing the Holy Spirit's work in us. Do you realize that the Holy Spirit of God is working in your life, producing a harvest? And so like the farmer, we are to be patient, understanding that no matter what we are going through, we can be patient because the Holy Spirit of God is at work in our lives, producing a spiritual harvest. So there's the farmer. And then secondly, the prophets in verse number 10. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, one of the things I notice about the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord is that they were within the will of God, and yet they oftentimes suffered. For instance, you know the story of Jeremiah. God called Jeremiah to be a prophet, and Jeremiah said, Lord, I think you have the wrong one here. I can't do that. I have no experience. I'm, I'm too young. And the Lord said, but Jeremiah, I have called you. Well, Jeremiah didn't want to do it. He didn't want to be God's prophet, but he yielded to the Lord because that was God's will. And then he began to prophesy in the name of the Lord. He was hated because of the message he proclaimed. The people hated him because of his message. He was arrested. He was thrown into a cistern. All kinds of bad things happened to him. And yet he remained faithful to the Lord as a patient prophet. Daniel. The king from Darius went out that no one was to pray in anyone's name except the king's. And so Daniel immediately went to the Lord and prayed. He was a prophet of God, faithful to the word of God. 
Was he rewarded for that? Not immediately. He was thrown into the lion's den. But even though he was thrown into the lion's den, he patiently remained faithful to the Lord. You you see, ladies and gentlemen, when we are committed to the Lord, we are to be patient, understanding that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. And even though we are not immediately rewarded, we nevertheless, like the prophets, are to be patient. And then there's Job in verse number 11. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. If there's anyone who epitomizes patience and suffering, it has to be Job. In the first three chapters of Job, I went back and read them this past week, and the first three chapters, it lists there the distress that he went through as the Sabaeans came against him. They took his donkeys and oxen and so forth, and then in... Job chapter 1, verse number 16, it says, And while he was still speaking, that is the servant who gave him the bad news. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He says, Now then, there's a fire that has come, and it has burned up the rest of your animals, the rest of your possessions. His children were killed. As a result of a great wind, a storm came, and and so his children then were killed. And then he lost his health. In Job 2, 7, then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. So now then he's lost his, his health. And then his wife turned against him. It says in Job 2, 9, then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. So all of these things happened to Job. The Sabaeans came against him, took his oxen, took his donkeys. Then he lost his cattle. He lost his children. He lost his health. He lost his wife. He lost everything. Well, what would you have done at that point? I'll tell you what Job did. He's a lot like us. In Job chapter 4 through 31, he begins to defend himself for being unfairly treated. He there is talking to the Lord, and he says, you know, why is this happening to me? What have I done? So he defends himself. Lord, this is unfair. What is happening to me is not fair. And so then the Lord, it's a humorous passage of Scripture to me, in chapters 38 through 42, the Lord meets with him and humbles him. He begins by saying, "Uh, Job, where were you uh, when I hung the world in place? Where were you when I made the stars and the sun and the moon? How many grains of sand are there on the beaches? And he just starts asking him those questions. Job, you're telling me what's fair and not fair. You're telling me what's just and not just. You're telling me what's righteous and not righteous. Where were you when all these things happened? So the Lord humbled him. And then the Lord delivered him. The application of Job, I think, is that uh, we are to remain faithful to God even when we suffer. Remain faithful to him. Job said, though he slay me yet, will I trust him? I I pray. In fact, I was praying before I came in here today. I said, Lord, I don't want to suffer. You know, I don't want to suffer. And I don't don't know about you, but I just like uninterrupted prosperity and blessings. I mean, I'm, I'm not one of those who's going around looking to suffer. I don't want to suffer. But I pray if I do, that God will give me the grace to be faithful to him. During that time, 
There's the call to patience. Now, when we suffer, we have a tendency to discouragement in verse number 8. You to be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. There is a tendency to discouragement when things are not going good. And personally, I, I think that there is considerable discouragement within our own nation today. There are those who are discouraged about the war on terror. In fact, uh, uh, because there has been some success there and we have not been attacked again, we're losing some of our diligence. But there are people who are discouraged with it. And they say, how long does this go on? How many lives are lost? How much money are, are, is, is this going to cost? And so forth. And so there's discouragement there. There's discouragement with gas prices. You know, to fill up your tank today costs as much as my first car did. Well, that, to be honestly, that is an exaggeration. It takes two tanks to, for what my first car cost. And so we just see it going up. I mean, this past week, it just, it just continues to go up. And every time the dollar becomes weaker, the gas goes higher. There's inflation. Some of us remember uh, when inflation was 21% in this country. There's crime. We read about drugs and gangs and all of these things, and we're concerned about that. And so there's some discouragement there, immorality. We think, what in the world has happened? I mean, where are those values on which this nation was built? And so there is a considerable discouragement. Here's the thing. If we take our eyes off the Lord as believers, if we take our eyes off the Lord, we always become discouraged. Now, see, that was true with Elijah. You know the story of Elijah, wonderful story in the Old Testament about Elijah being on Mount Carmel. He had the contest as to whose God was the true God. And uh, they, they had the contest and he called down fire from heaven. It was a great victory. And then Jezebel threatened his life. She said, by tomorrow night, you're going to be dead, just like my prophets are. And so he took off running, and there we see him underneath the juniper tree having a pity party, saying, Lord, why is this happening to me? You see, he took his eyes off of God and what had happened there on Mount Carmel, and now all he can see is the threat of Jezebel. And he said, Lord, I'm the only one serving you. There's no one here serving you except me. I'm the only faithful one you have, and you're treating me this way. So he became discouraged. He wanted to die. That's what he said. It was Moses. Moses was discouraged by the constant complaint of the people that he was trying to take to the promised land, took his eyes off the Lord. And so in Numbers 11:15, he said, So if thou art going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once if I have found favor in thy sight. He said, what happened to Moses is that he took his eyes off the Lord and began to look at the people. And they were complaining all the time. They didn't like anything that he did. They complained all the way when he is trying to be obedient to the Lord. So he took his eyes off the Lord. He began to look at the people. And when he did, he became discouraged and wanted to die. Folks, that's what happens to us. When we get our eyes off the Lord and we get it on the disease, when we get our eyes off the Lord and we get it on someone who complains all the time, when we get our eyes off the Lord and we get it on something else, then we always become discouraged. So our eyes then must be on Him. In verse number 8 he says, You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The word strengthen that is used there literally means to prop up. So he said you need to, you need to encourage yourself. You need to prop up your faith. Well, how do you do that? 
How do you prop up your faith when you're discouraged? When things are not going good. And, and I know that there are some of you who are seated here and some who are watching by television and, and you're discouraged. How do you prop up your faith? Well, first of all, you, you remember God's presence. Do you know He has promised that He would always be with you? He would never leave you. And He's with you there in the hospital. He's, he's with you during times of difficulty, during times of sickness, during times of prosperity. He is with you when you go to school. He is with you when you walk down the aisle to be married. He is with you there in the labor room. He is with you. That's what He said. So we, we remember God's presence, that He has promised that He is with us. We remember His promises. We sing, standing on the promises. Well, brother, we need to stand on them. Rather than just sit in the pew and sing them, we need to stand on the promises. What does He promise? That He cares for you. In 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. He cares for you. That's the promise of the Lord, that He cares for you and that He sustains you. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden upon the Lord and He will sustain you. We remember the promise. And there in verse number 8, look at verse number 8b. He says, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He is coming in victory. He is coming again. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is coming again, and that is our hope. So we look up, even when we have a tendency and a desire to look down. Remember His purpose. God has a purpose even during times of suffering. I, I, I'm not one who stands before you and says, I know all of this stuff. I don't. But God has a purpose, even when we are going through times that we don't understand and times that we are suffering. You know the story of Joseph, how his brother sold him into slavery. And then later when Joseph confronted his brothers, and they didn't know it was him at first. And you know all of that story. And Joseph said, you know, when you sold me into slavery, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. God, God, God was working even then. God was present with me then. God was faithful to His promises even then. And even though you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. We all know Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And then in verse number 29, it says that the Lord is working in your life to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. Folks, here's the thing. We don't always understand it. I certainly don't. That we go through difficult times in life and the Lord is at work turning all of these things for good. And the good that He is creating in us is that we become like Jesus. Now, that's what God wants to do in your life. God wants to use everything in your life to make you increasingly like Jesus. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? I'm, I'm so far from being like Jesus. But God is at work in my life and your life to make us more like Jesus. One final thing, and that's the response to maturity. How do we respond as mature believers when we face times of suffering? He says, first of all, don't complain. In verse number 9, do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. The word complain suggests holding a grudge. Now, there is a tendency when someone does us wrong that we hold a grudge. Is that correct? 
I guess it's just the two of us. When some, I heard about a man, he and his wife had gotten a divorce, and so he had to pay alimony, and he resented that. So every time he paid alimony, he paid her in nickels. Now, I don't suggest that. I'm just saying that one did that. There is a tendency when we are done wrong to hold a grudge. But our example, Jesus, when he was crucified, prayed, Father, forgive them. Stephen, when he was stoned, Father, forgive them. He says, don't complain. Don't complain. And then do not swear, verse number 12, above all my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now, that's interesting to me, but Chuck Swindoll takes that verse and connects it to the previous verses. Usually it stands alone, but in his treatment of this passage of Scripture, he takes the twelfth verse and then connects it to those verses that we have been looking at. The word swear means to grasp something for the purpose of supporting what one is saying or doing, thus to swear something is true. Now, this is the way that he connects it. He says that this verse is connected to the other to swear that God is faithful, that God keeps his promises. And so then, there are some people when they are going through times of suffering who assume a super spiritual posture. I mean, they just grit and bear it and, you know, they hang in there because by doing so, then they are swearing that God is true, that God is faithful, that God sustains them, that God keeps his promises. So if I just hang in there and stay with it, then I am swearing that God is who he says he is and does what he says that he does. Swindoll says, no, that, that's, that's not the right approach. He says, instead of taking that super spiritual posture, be quiet and learn what God's trying to teach you. You don't have to take a super spiritual posture. Yeah, I'll tell you what, my wife has left me, the kids are on drugs, and my car won't start, praise God. You don't have to do that. God is at work in our life, and so Chuck says what we do is that we be quiet. Listen. What's God trying to teach you? And then respond in the Spirit. Job did not know why he was suffering. He did not know why he was going through what he did, but he trusted God and said, I have declared that which I did not understand. Lord, I didn't. I'm talking, but I, don't, I didn't understand it. I've declared that which I did not understand. And his insight came at the outcome. That's where the insight to Job came. It was at the outcome. I say that to say in my life and probably in yours, we best understand God's lessons in life in retrospect. When I'm going through things, I usually have, don't have a clue what's going on. And then later I look back and I say, well, that's what he was doing. I sure didn't see it at the time, but that's what he was doing. And so we learn in retrospect. Let me conclude real quickly. Some lessons from suffering. Don't focus on the situation. If you do, you'll become angry. Don't focus on yourself. If you do, you'll begin to feel sorry for yourself. Don't focus on someone to blame. If you do, you'll hold a grudge. Don't focus on the present because then you'll miss what God is trying to accomplish in you. Do focus on the return of Jesus. 
And you'll notice in verse number 7, verse number 8, and verse number 9, he mentions the return of Christ because Christ is coming one day, and my friend, he then will make it all right. Is this life unfair? You bet. Things don't work out for us all the time? That's right. But I want you to know there's coming a day when Jesus Christ is coming, and he'll make everything right. And so that is our focus. Our Father, we thank you for the promise of the return of the Lord Jesus. I pray, Heavenly Father, for those who are going through times of difficulty today, encourage them, please. And Father, I pray for those who have never come to know Jesus and they are struggling to live their life without Christ. I pray, Father, that today they would commit their lives to you. Lord, I pray for those who, who uh, are Christians, they do know you, but they're trying to live their lives without a church family. I pray that you'd bring them today, that they'd become a part of this fellowship. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Well, in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. The choir's going to sing. Opportunity for you to say yes to the Lord. No matter what's happening in your life, he's the answer. Let's stand together as we stand. You come, I'll greet you as you do.